Hey everybody, Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered From Reality podcast. I hope everyone's having a great Wednesday. Uh, I am, you know, I'm doing my thing, online classes, working on the podcast, getting some exercise, but uh, still testing positive on my rapid tests. Hopefully, uh, I, I keep hoping maybe they're just false positives, but keeping it safe before I fly back to Chicago next week, so kind of keeping it low. But anyways, I want to start this episode by kind of painting a scenario here. The year is 1876, and one of my favorite presidents, Ulysses S. Grant, has decided to not run for a third term as president. Apparently, this threw a huge curveball into the presidential election cycle because most political experts at the time assumed that he was going to run for his third term. Let's remember that back in those days, you actually could run for a third term if you wanted. FDR did it back in the 30s and 40s. But anyways, so instead, when uh, President Grant said he wouldn't run for another term, a congressman by the name of James G. Blaine emerged as the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to get a majority, and the party ended up settling with Governor Hayes of Ohio. That's Rutherford B. Hayes, who's probably a name you, you could probably think sounds familiar because he did end up becoming president. But he was considered kind of this compromise candidate. And the 1876 Democratic National Convention nominated Governor Tilden of New York. And so now we had Rutherford B. Hayes versus Governor Tilden of New York for the 1876 election. And you may be wondering why I'm starting this episode with a little history lesson about an election that happened in kind of that strange time in U.S. history where, honestly, not many of us know who the presidents were. You know, that kind of Reconstruction, post-Civil War era, there's a lot of forgettable names in there. But anyways, the, the results of this presidential election between Tilden and Hayes actually became quite historic because it was one of the most contested elections in U.S. history, maybe up until 2020. From what I've gathered, Tilden won the popular vote, Tilden the Democrat, over Hayes, or at least that was the first count. (laughs) The numbers show that during the first round, in the Electoral College, Tilden had won 184 electoral votes to Hayes' 165. But then a problem came up when there were four states that remained unresolved. This was Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Oregon. And of these states, in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, each party reported its candidate had won, sometimes without evidence. And in Oregon, one elector was replaced. So lots of chaos happening. The rationale was that this elector was illegal for being an elected or appointed official. And so then this is where the roots of this controversy of 1877 were mainly located. These states couldn't agree on who should have been awarded these electoral votes. So it kind of just became this muddled mess of who's correct, who's wrong, who do we believe. And, you know, it obviously took partisan lines. And so this led to a fascinating moment in U.S. history where there was a very informal and imperfect deal which was struck to resolve this dispute. And it was called the Compromise of 1877. And a very brief Sparknotes summary of this compromise is that it awarded all 20 electoral votes that were up in contention to Rutherford B. Hayes. So he became president, and in return, the Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South. And so this actually was kind of what was credited with ending Reconstruction. 
And that's also kind of the era when we started to see the South adopt Jim Crow and become quite violent towards African-Americans again. And so this was actually a huge time in history. And this compromise was quite a poor compromise, in my opinion, because Ulysses S. Grant tried so hard for reconstruction, even if it was flawed at times. And this kind of threw it all out the door. But now the reason I start with this background is because of this controversial compromise left a lot of bad blood, (laughs) but it also led to the Electoral Count Act, which happened in 1887, so about 10 years later. As I mentioned earlier, these four contested states sent in multiple competing electors with different political ideals and motives, and at the time, Congress just had no rules in place to help moderate such an issue or decide who the electors should be, and this is why the compromise was created to at least alleviate the issue. You know, as one could imagine, the Democrats were furious. Tilden looked to have won over Hayes, yet the compromise allowed for Hayes to become president, blah, blah, blah. And this is why Congress passed the Electoral Count Act. Unfortunately, as a really good NPR article from this week points out, the crafters of this law did a pretty awful job. And this law may need to be changed quite soon because in a lot of ways, the big lie, which happened in 2020 into 2021 as well as January 6th and all these, I guess, contested and fraudulent lawsuits that happened uh, after Biden was announced the winner, the Electoral Count Act kind of allowed this to happen. And I'll get into that more in a minute, but before we get into the analysis, let's kind of look at actually what the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is and why it maybe paved the road for January 6th. So using Cornell Law School as my reference here and mainly summarizing what I'm seeing here. The law states basically what happens after a presidential election. One notable point is that it actually established, excuse me, established January 6th as the day where the electors meet and certify the vote, right? So that's what we saw where Congress certifies the election. Mike Pence saw over it, for example. So, so they established the 6th day of January. And then it goes over how this process occurs, blah, blah, blah. The law then mainly describes how the electoral count process will occur between November and January 6th. So according to the law, the electoral college is to meet in states across the country on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December to cast their votes. I think we all remember when this happened last year, or I guess two years ago. So so the law continues by talking about how if a state has finalized its results six days before the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December then those results can qualify for what is called safe harbor status. To explain that a little bit further, this means that Congress must treat these results as being conclusive, even if a state's legislature sends in a competing set of results. Another way to say that is that if this part, it's basically that this part permits legislatures to formally object to individual results or entire states, Um, provided each objection is signed by at least one senator and representative. So the safe harbor status means that as long as you can get one senator or representative to back up this slate of electors and and the certification they've decided, then then I guess it it kind of flies. So what could happen here is that if you have states that have a contested uh, certification process, it would actually go to Congress, and then Congress would actually decide. So it's basically putting the decision of a federal election in the hands of the legislature. And we actually saw this process unfold in the period where Trump's team was doing these lawsuits, 
Do you remember Sidney Powell, the Kraken, Rudy Giuliani melting, farting, all that? And that was kind of that period. But the Electoral Count Act actually allowed this scenario to unfold because, because of this safe harbor period and this weird window of time between November and January. And, and that's kind of where another issue of this Electoral Count Act is that even if the states have submitted official results, say Georgia certifies Biden as the winner, Congress could then prolong the counting process even without legitimate concerns. M NPR notes here that according to legal experts, it does not do a good enough job clarifying the vice president's role either. And it says here in quotes, this may be why Vice President Mike Pence's role became the focus of efforts on January 6th to overturn the election. End quotes. And I think uh, this is where the problem may be. States can certify their electoral votes, send them to Congress, but Congress can delay the vote, prolong it, or try to obstruct it. And it isn't directly clear what the VP can do, so that's why I think there was the pressure on Mike Pence that day, right? And let's briefly remember that John Eastman, the old Chapman Law professor, he had that memo, and there were other memos like it, that did call for a contested group of electors in these states to then muddle who won, send it to Congress, and then have Mike Pence overturn the, the current agreement of who won the election. And it seems like some of Trump's team were directly using these uncertainties in the Electoral Count Act to delay the vote. And as we know, this eventually led to January 6th, which was not a great look for our democracy. So that's where it just gets so complicated is because it doesn't look like the founders ever intended for Congress to actually be able to have an, a final say in a contested or, I guess, very close election. So going on, The Economist has a really good piece on the ECA, which I'm going to call it from now on, the Electoral Count Act, and it makes a good point. It says here in quotes that the ECA, which tries to set guidelines for how Congress settles disputed results in presidential elections, is vague, confusing and possibly unconstitutional. It is also ripe for reform, end quotes. And I think the potential that this act is unconstitutional may be a way to overturn it, if we could actually look into that. Again, who knows if we could, but, but that would probably be the best bet. It should be noted that, and The Economist mentions this, where I got the information on this, is that it should be noted that Article 2 of the Constitution basically explains that each state gets the same number of electors as it has members of the House and Senate. It also says that, that states send certified election results to Congress and that in a full joint session of Congress, the president of the Senate, who is also the vice president, will open all the certificates and the vote shall then be counted. And if no candidate reaches a majority, then the House chooses the president. And The Economist notes that the founders slash crafters of the Constitution were always opposed to the legislature electing the president. And I think this is where the concerns from many election experts are coming from for the 2024 election, is if Republicans control both houses and also hold many state legislatures, based on how divided and partisan the country is, we can't really rely on them doing the principled thing. And the worry is, obviously down the road, is that usually both parties pick up each other's worst tendencies and habits. So then there's the worry that Democrats would do this too. And I, am, I don't think that is at all not a reality especially if things get worse. So in 2020, you know, we were a we, I would say we were lucky enough that there were some Republicans who voted to certify Biden's election, the Brad Raffensburgers, right? Uh, Mike Pence. But it doesn't seem as likely that that would happen today, right? The same amount of Republicans 
that were that spoke out a year ago now seem to at least be entertaining the big lie or gaslighting gaslighting their base about it a little bit. Even Kevin McCarthy said yesterday that he was going to remove Democrats from their committees if he became Speaker of the House in 2022. So yeah, I think that's the big concern here is that we are not in a great political environment right now to expect lawmakers to do the right thing. And I think we could see opportunistic politicians who want to maintain electoral control. They could probably muddle the waters here and take advantage of the Electoral Count Act as it was written in the late 1800s. So like stopping my tangent on that, I think the argument that The Economist makes and some Republicans and libertarians have also made is that Article 2 of the Constitution really doesn't provide a mechanism for rejection. And by allowing federal legislators to, to impose their preferences, the Electoral Count Act weakens state control over elections. And this is really contrary to kind of how our federal system is supposed to operate. And ironically, it's actually contrary to what a lot of Republicans would defend. Usually, obviously, the party's changing. But that's the big thing here, is that it's actually completely changing how the election system is supposed to work. And it happened during a time when compromise was needed, and they just wanted to figure out how to not have another election like the Rutherford-Tilden one happen again. And instead, they might have made it worse. So that takes us to where we are today. I'm not alone in saying that we need to change the Electoral Count Act, because as we are seeing, it decides who counts votes for each state, and it also gives Congress, even if it's highly divided and operating for the wrong motives, it gives them the power to reject. And so maybe this wouldn't have been a problem 10 years ago. But with these Republican states changing their election laws and putting in loyalists, I think it could be a problem. And as I've said many times, the issue with our upcoming elections is less about limiting people's access to the ballot box, but it's more about who is counting those ballots. And Democrats need to address this fairly soon. Of course, they're not. We, we just need to reform the Electoral Count Act because it seems like in an, in an indirect way or maybe even a direct way, it created the atmosphere that led to January 6th and still is leading to our just completely chaotic political climate. I get irritated with kind of the Twitter rhetoric or even what progressive politicians say when they talk about states limiting voting rights. You know, everyone focused on Georgia's new bill, which happened, I guess, about a year ago now. The one that involved, you know, not being able to hand out water bottles in lines and limiting drop boxes in metropolitan areas and voter ID. And obviously some of that is not good. But I don't know if a lot of these people saw the forest through the trees here. It seems like Democrats are only worried about the right to vote. But not about the changes in who's counting the votes. The, these issues aren't mutually exclusive either. But there wasn't a focus on that same Georgia bill and how it changed who their election officials are, right? Like Brad Raffensperger, after he denied Trump, is no longer going to be in charge. And now instead, there's a partisan state legislature that is. And I think a lot of people or enough people aren't talking about that. There are definitely people talking about it, but it's not, not significantly enough to make a big change. Now, I will be optimistic for a minute because sometimes I, I need to be the optimism broker. And... There seems to be some glimmer of hope right now because even some Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Marco Rubio seem to be entertaining some form of reform, and some Democrats do as well. For example, Mitch McConnell said in an interview with Politico, it obviously has some flaws, and I think it's worth discussing. 
Moderate Democrats, too, like, our, like the most popular ones right now, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, have also endorsed looking at the law. But it seems like more of the progressive side are hesitant, I guess, to work with Republicans on this. And even Senate, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, in quotes here, some scorekeeping matters little if the game is rigged, end quotes. And I don't know if I agree with that. I think this is a careless thing to say because I understand that Democrats are wary of Republicans right now, and probably rightfully so in a lot of ways, but the Democrats do need to be pragmatic. If this act allows partisan politics to have an influence in elections, it should be changed, right? Because that's our big issue is partisan politics in elections right now. Also, election experts are just screaming into the void about this. <laughs> there's one person, uh, there's a Professor Green of William & Mary, and they say here in quotes, it doesn't address the larger problems with how our elections are run. But that being said, it seems like a fairly straightforward place to start. It seems to be the low-hanging fruit. Totally agreed. Also, Ned Foley, an election law expert at The Ohio State University, said here in quotes, it's especially important to do it this year. He mentions that now is the maximum veil of ignorance where the two political parties don't know exactly what the lay of the land is going to be in 24 and 25. And so there's a greater chance of bipartisan consensus on the clear procedures for governing the process. And I think that's also a really good point is, I know people would say things have escalated quite radically just over the last year, but I think the midterms, I think after the midterms, it, would, it could almost be impossible to maybe reform this. Because right now, people are still trying to understand, like, is Trumpism here to stay? Do Republicans need to move on? Do Democrats need to just be pragmatic and centrist? Or do they need to be bold? So right now is the time where we can test the waters and potentially get it done before it's too late. But it does seem like it's getting close to that clock striking midnight point. And we do need to focus on it. I mentioned this, uh, I mentioned some of this in that reflection episode I did a week ago on the anniversary of January 6th. And I know we need to talk about January 6th. I do talk about January 6th. But a lot of the speeches seemed a bit symbolic and more for show to me. You know, Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney being the only Republicans that were part of the ceremonies. You know, it looked good, but it didn't, it didn't really accomplish anything, especially because Dick Cheney's almost unanimously despised. So I don't know what their messaging is trying to do for that. And they're not, it's not solving anything. Instead, you know, if Democrats really want to talk about January 6th, they need to seize this moment. Right now, and it might be limited, but they still have control of both houses, so they could actually do something about securing our national elections. Bill Kristol actually had a great conversation with, with William Bode. He's a professor of law and the director of the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago. And he discusses, in this podcast Bill Kristol did with him, he discusses kind of an overview of the legal arguments and attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And, and just to say, he's not for that. He's quite critical, and he's more sounding the alarm. But, I, but he more importantly points out that people like John Eastman had these wacky theories that were maybe kind of half-baked. And, you know, these lawsuits like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, they were pretty incompetent. Sidney Ellis. Ellis, I think it was Sidney Ellis. They were... They were all kind of half-assed, and they were not really competent attorneys. But he worries that there are very bright conservative scholars that are currently looking for holes in the Constitution and this Electoral Count Act. And he thinks that they're probably hoping that if they have a couple years to really research these issues, maybe next time it'll work. And he also looks at our Supreme Court as well as a potential place for issues. 
But he basically says that we need to fill these holes and solve some of these issues before there's better Republican lawyers out there that can actually potentially overturn the election. And, you know, I've, I've kind of asked myself this rhetorical question, and, and it's what if Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 200 votes instead of, you know, thousands? What if someone else is in that position next time who's willing to do that? And what if it's so much more specific? It makes me worry, you know, and that's why I think Democrats need to get going on this. And if Mitch McConnell wants to work on it with them, get over your differences and do it. So, yeah, that is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And I've started to see more articles and more people talking about it recently. So I think that's a good sign. Again, I hope our politicians maybe notice it. But then again, there's probably some politicians who notice it but don't want it overturned, right? Kind of changing gears a little bit, but sticking on this same concept. Obviously, the midterms are this year. And I think it's going to be a very strange one for us because it's going to be a good harbinger of what's to come. Again, that's why we need to act now before the midterms because things might change drastically after the midterms. And, you know, I just wanted to highlight a few things that I think Democrats are really just trying to shoot themselves in the foot. They just, I don't know what it is, but it seems like they always are trying to get people to vote for the other side. So two examples, New York City and Chicago. In the realm of voting, it seems like Democrats are again going down this unfortunate path of feeding the Republican narrative, mainly around illegal voting, actually, especially when with Trump's big lie. I don't know what the hell they're thinking, but Axios reported, I think it was yesterday, in quotes here, more than 800,000 non-citizens can vote in local elections after New York City Mayor Eric Adams allowed legislation to take effect on Sunday, end quotes. Apparently Adams, who I think started around the beginning of the new year, was originally opposed to it, but has changed his mind. And it's interesting because obviously Republicans are filing lawsuits, and so there are going to be court hearings about this. But if this isn't stopped by judges, New York City would be considered the first large city in the U.S. to extend voting rights to non-citizens or people that are technically living in the United States illegally based on our current immigration law and framework. So this wouldn't go into effect until 2023, but <laughs> it's interesting. I would also note that they wouldn't be able to vote in state or federal elections. So, I mean, I'm sure Republicans will lie about it, but they wouldn't be able to say, like, all these illegal immigrants voted for the Democratic candidate for president. It's more about cities. And part of me does understand the logic here. If you have a population living in a city that are obviously using its services, they should probably have a say in the dynamics of the city. But that being said, it's awful politically, especially in a midterm year. You know, for years, people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Trump, obviously, have said that Democrats want to let illegal immigrants vote. And <laughs> this New York City decision is obviously more complicated and nuanced than that, but it's a great talking point, and they quite literally are letting people that aren't legal citizens vote. And so that's a dangerous, dangerous time to put that into effect, in my opinion. Also, schools, I think, are the other big issue that Democrats keep shooting themselves in the foot. They really seem to be on the losing side when it comes to schools being closed, for example. If you haven't seen what's been happening in Chicago, it's... it's Pretty wild and just ridiculous. So the teachers' union had walked out of teaching last week, so schools were shut down. And when they were criticized for it, even by Lori Lightfoot, the quite progressive mayor of Chicago, 
their response was that being forced to go back to the classroom during the pandemic was an example of elitism, sexism, racism, and an outdated class system. Of course, it was interesting because, you know, Lori Lightfoot is an African-American bisexual woman, so she definitely checks some of those intersectional boxes as well. So it's kind of funny they're reacting to her by saying that. It's also, to me, not a very nuanced response to just pretty much put every adjective together, elitism, sexism, racism. But the problem is kids were not going to school, right? And uh, Chicago has a lot of lower-income communities, marginalized communities that need help in school. And so it's, it's totally a nightmare. I think I saw that Wednesday, so today the, this podcast is out. I think the teachers are going back into the classroom, so it got resolved. But I've, I'm seeing a lot of these debates going on, especially in mainly Democratic areas. Schools are closed. In Florida, schools are open. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not um, happy with how Ron DeSantis has handled Florida. But I, I, do, I do think schools should be open. And, you know, we're just starting to see some of the ramifications of almost two years with on and off remote learning. I don't think it's good for kids. And obviously COVID can make kids sick, but with vaccines being approved for younger kids and the low likelihood of being terribly sick, I think it's just ridiculous to be closing schools. Like the flu is more dangerous for younger kids. And this is another issue that I think Republicans are going to fight. There's no doubt that Remote learning seems to benefit the middle class and upper classes. A lot of low-income families maybe don't have access to enough computers for all their kids or maybe not good internet access or not internet access. So it's really hard to do remote learning. Also think about childcare. You know, wealthier families can afford to send their kids somewhere or maybe only one parent works. But schools are truly an important form of childcare for many working parents. Kids even get support, meals, social services from going to school. And I'm just surprised the Democratic Party has been on the side of school closures because it's really elitist. And, you know, the Republicans are already attacking them for it left and right. I've talked, you know, about how the pandemic has been great for people that work remotely, but it's really been awful for essential workers. And, you know, they keep talking about the great resignation or other reasons for why people aren't working. Well, probably one of them is that with schools closed, it's they kind of have to stay home to watch their kids, especially if they can't afford daycare or whatnot. So a lot of factors that are actually hurting average people, and I think Republicans are going to really take advantage of that. There's a great article in The Atlantic about why a woman who is still a Democrat has soured on her party, and the main issue is schools. And I'm sure there's other people like that too. I mean, I I agree. I'm not a Democrat, but I totally agree with souring on their position on schools. She mentions that, you know, the science just doesn't support keeping... Uh, keeping kids home. A line from the article says here in quotes, the American Academy of Pediatrics first urged a return to school in June 2020. In February 2021, when the New York Times surveyed 175 pediatric disease experts, 86% recommended in-person school, even if no one had been vaccinated. And obviously these are studies, opinions, but I think what a lot of pediatricians are saying, keep the kids in school, I would listen to them over teachers' unions. Something interesting to note as well is that in the article, and, and I mean, just, just outside the article as well, is that Democrats are big supporters of universal K-12 through schooling. And I think that's good as well. But the article makes a point is, how can I get excited about universal pre-K proposals when K-12 to is in shambles? 
And I think that's part of why the Democrats are struggling right now is, yeah, they're proposing all these just giant reforms and progressive changes, but I don't know if the system's in place to really make them work or the messaging's there or the rationale. And to kind of wrap this up here is the reason why I'm mentioning this voting change in New York City and the school issue in Chicago and other cities as well is that it just seems like the Democratic Party isn't able to rise to the occasion in regards to helping save our democracy. Because it's clear that the right wing is slowly becoming an authoritarian movement. And, you know, I've mentioned this again, is that sometimes you need a strong coalition of people that support democracy to stop the autocrats. And right now, they are struggling. They're on the wrong side of messaging on almost every issue, it seems like. And it worries me that there are still millions of Americans who say, hey, after January 6th and after four years of Trump, let's do it again. And the Democrats are just helping that case. So, you know, to wrap this whole thing up, I know I talked about a lot of things here, is that we need to reform the Electoral Count Act. I know I'm going back to that is because I don't think Democrats have much momentum going into the next few election cycles. So we need to do something now that at least keeps our elections fair. So if the Republicans win, they can't rig the system because we could quickly slide into something very illiberal, I guess would be the most generous way to put it. So anyways, this episode's a little shorter today, but I will be back next week with more episodes, and uh, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Again, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, all that jazz, and um, keep safe out there. I saw hospitalizations in the U.S. hit an all-time high. Um, keep it safe, and honestly, like, get get vaccinated. I've, I've heard kind of horror stories about some of the ICUs right now, about what happens if you maybe aren't vaccinated and you get Omicron. Because for me, Omicron was quite mild, but I've gotten my booster. And uh, there's still a lot of people in the hospital with Omicron right now. So it's mild if you are healthy and or vaccinated. But uh, don't play with fire, people. So anyways, take care. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.